Welcome, everyone. Hello, my name is Linda Mickleborough, and I'm the Executive Director of ACCA. Um, so I have the great pleasure in welcoming you uh, to tonight's forum, Getting Down to Business, Pathways, Detours and Strategies. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Boonarung people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional and ongoing owners of the land on which we meet this evening. Uh, I acknowledge elders, and in particular, I'd like to mention Nawit Carolyn Briggs of the Boonarong, who also chairs the Yalingwa Advisory Committee for ACCA. Um, so, welcome and welcome to any elders that are present with us tonight and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us. Um, and welcome to all others as well. Um, this symposium expands on our current exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism, which is part of ACCA's ongoing Big, si big Picture series, um, which is about art's connection to wider social, political uh, and community issues. Um, and the, the, the design of these exhibitions has been very much about creating conversations, igniting conversations. Um, and so to, this evening's symposium is a great example of the kind of things um, that we hope that the exhibition program will generate here at ACCA. Um, getting Down to Business is a, a, a leadership and professional development symposium presented in association with the Trawalla Foundation, the Office of Prevention and Women's Equality and the University of Melbourne. And each of those have been extremely important partners for ACCA to work with over the course of this exhibition and together with those three partners and others, we've pre presented a tremendous amount of public programs. Um, so thank you so much uh, to those who have partnered with us. Um, tonight, inspiring women speak about their careers and their insights. Uh, the panel will be chaired by Andrea Carson, and I'm very happy to welcome Andrea, who is a lecturer in political science at the University of Melbourne. She's an honorary fellow at the University Centre for Advancing Journalism and teaches women how to get into public life through Melbourne University's very exciting Pathway to Politics program um, that's situated within the School of Government. Her research interests, um, and when I was discussing this with, with her before, they're, they're so long, there's so many, uh, so she has summarised them herself in an interest in campaigns, elections and voters' responses, as well as journalism's relationship to democracy and what more exciting time to be talking about those things, um, at risk of uh, invoking the Prime Minister, <laughs> sorry about the exciting times, but, but a very relevant um, and resonant times to be discussing those things. Um, Andrea is going to introduce our other speakers. So thank you so much for attending this evening's event. Um, and if you haven't already seen Unfinished Business, I do hope that you'll have a time to come back before the exhibition concludes on the 26th of March. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda, and to all the staff at ACCA who have made this event possible. Congratulations also on Unfinished Business. I hope everyone's had the chance to see it. I have, and it's truly inspiring. 
It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to leading women from the arts, academia, and Australian public life. In the next hour, you will hear from each of our guest speakers about their work and inspiration, and learn about their career paths, how they deal with adversity, and what keeps them motivated. We will hear individually from each of our speakers, and then we'll form a panel for some thoughtful discussion about women in leadership and other aspects of what it takes to develop a career across the arts, the humanities, academia, and politics. And your questions will be most welcome. But first, let me introduce each of our speakers before we begin with our first guest, Kylie Belling, who I will introduce you to last. In front of me, slightly to my left, is Professor Cordelia Fine. Cordelia is an academic psychologist and award-winning writer. She is also a professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Melbourne. Cordelia is an accomplished science communicator who successfully crosses that divide between communicating with the academic community and the broader public. She deconstructs myths about the differences between the sexes. She does this in innovative ways, including popular science books, most notably her latest book, Testosterone Rex, which won the prestigious Royal Society Science Book Prize last year. Cordelia is a recipient of the inaugural Women's Leadership Institute Australia Research Fellowship, and next month she will be awarded the Edinburgh Medal. This medal is awarded to, and I quote, men and women of science and technology whose professional achievements are judged to have made a significant contribution to the understanding and well-being of humanity. Welcome to Cordelia. May I also offer a warm welcome to Elizabeth Gower, a highly distinguished international artist who lives and works in Melbourne. Elizabeth, Elizabeth has been exhibiting her mesmerising works, including collages and wall hangings since 1976. She creates stunning abstract compositions from everyday materials with an emphasis upon translucency, fragility and impermanence. Her work has often been connected to a feminist sensibility, but I will leave it to her to explain that. Her work has been exhibited in major galleries across the world, from London to Paris and New York, to name a few. Elizabeth was the first woman lecturer at the Victorian College of the Arts and has had a long career in academia since then. Welcome, Elizabeth. And now to our first speaker, I'd like to introduce you to Kylie Belling. Kylie is a Yorta Yorta, Wiradjuri, South Sea Islander woman born and bred on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. Kylie was the first Aboriginal graduate of the Victorian College of the Arts School of Drama in 1985. She went on to build a successful acting career across theatre, film and television. She co-founded Australia's longest running Aboriginal theatre group, Il Bajiri, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Theatre Cooperative. Kylie is a leader with over 20 years experience working across the Aboriginal community, the not-for-profit and government sectors involved in the arts, education, justice, health and human services portfolios. She is currently a principal advisor at the Office of Prevention and Women's Equality. Finally, in preparing their addresses for you tonight, each speaker was asked to consider their current focus, turning points in their career, and any light bulb moments and advice that they might offer to their younger selves 
and strategies for us to develop our careers. May I introduce Carly to the podium? Thank you so much, Andrea, for that wonderful introduction, and to Linda for the wonderful acknowledgement. Um, I too begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on today, those of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and all Aboriginal people in the room today. I also acknowledge the amazing Paula Bala, Wemba Wemba, Gundij Maria, warrior woman, artist, and one of the curators of Unfinished Business uh, here at um, ACCA. So um, I, I have not seen um, the Unfinished Business yet, but um, Opry are getting a special showing, viewing uh, next week, so we're really looking forward to that. Um, I've, I start with my name is Kylie Belling, but you know, I've already been introduced. Um, so, I'm one of four Aboriginal children adopted by non-Aboriginal parents. Um, as a family, um, we count among the 1% uh, success rate of a 99% breakdown of such adoptions. Um, so, I carry with me that burden, that joy. Um, I have a great relationship with my birth family. They're an amazing family, the Bamblets. They kind of rule and uh, they're part of the Yorta Yorta push. And um, so I have a very well cultivated imposter syndrome. Uh, so make of that what you will. Uh, uh, but um, I'm here um, because I work at Opwi uh, and, you know, I'm, I challenge kind of, you know, the, the concepts of leader, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, thank you for that uh, introduction. So what is my current focus? I live in the common world, so change is really the only constant. Uh, when, you know, working in uh, the public service arena, you know, I've worked in justice, health, human services, uh, 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 Commission for Children and Young People. I've, I've worked uh, in a lot of um, government departments and most of them on secondment. So it's really great to kind of have that experience. But um, really, my current focus is always looking for the next job while giving my current job um, my all. So I'm lucky. I love most of the, the secondments that I've been on. Um, and the, the one great thing is I've always felt that the positions that I've undertaken always um, under the Aboriginal banner, um, that I've, I've contributed in a positive way and continue to hopefully, um, yeah, on, on that path. So long as it's working in the Aboriginal space, I'm, I'm um, quite happy, well, depending on what it is. I mean, it's really great that, you know, with our, um, the current government and the push for treaty and self-determination, let me tell you, Victoria are leading and it's a really exciting time and let's hope it continues. Um, and, you know, that's such a complicated process. But anyway, just make sure that um, it's on the radar. And what self-determination means, actually, you know, is really challenging, particularly from a government perspective. Um, you know, I, I quote our Premier, um, you know, saying it's not just about um, being at the table. It's about 
you know, kind of making the table. Well, actually, we probably did serve at the table as well for many, many years. So um, it's about, yeah, making decisions. It's about consultation in the first instance. It's about actually being there and being, um, you know, being listened to and in the Aboriginal space, we know very well what works and, and what is meaningful for our communities. So, you know, um, ask. You will be told. <laughs> so, I've kind of come full circle. One of the reasons I stopped being an actor, yes, I say actor, you don't say lawyerist, you don't say doctorist, and that's probably about where the comparison ends. Um, it's because I was tired of the constant change. You know, you're only as good as your last job. Uh, or, actually, more truthfully, my daughter finally put a foot down and said, Mum, it's time to stay put. Part of being an actor is being a nomad, going from, you know, place to place, and it's wonderful. And, um, you know, she's a, a theatre baby. She would come off and give me notes you know, at five years' age, saying, um, you didn't do it, you know, you were much better last, last night, Mum. Uh, so, you know, so she's uh, 28 now, and um, as I say in my actor bio, she's my best ever production. She's always my constant focus. So we've traversed the world together since she was born. She's my best mate, annoying confidant, my pride and joy. And I don't really know how it happened, but she's grown into an amazing, independent, wise beyond her years, proud Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander warrior woman who is more comfortable, confident and happy in her skin than I will ever be. So my job is done. Well, kind of. She's a full-time student. So, um, so the bank of mum is still well and truly open. And um, hopefully we're stuck with each other you know, for a long time to come. And there she is, actually. That's my beautiful, proud black woman, my daughter. Her mum, um, no, I'm her mum. Her auntie <laughs> is uh, Destiny Deacon and, uh, and uh, her and Virginia Fraser um, are amazing artists, world-renowned artists. And Sophia has featured in her production since she was a baby. So we have a really great um, body of work that features that beautiful woman. I know, I try to get in a few, but no, it's always her. So what are the turning points in your career? I'm, I'm actually reading out the questions here. So, and this doesn't go well, down well, when I talk, talk to schools. I dropped out of school in Year 11, um, five essays behind and terribly miserable and disconnected. My friends and I had discovered bands and spent most of our nights hanging out at dives, seeing alternative bands around here, around St Kilda, oh, everywhere, anyway. Um, so a hangover of this era, um, amongst the other many hangovers, is that I mostly only ever wear black. I try to get out of it, but I just can't do it. Um, so I was one of those, if only she would apply herself students. Um, well, so one of my friends managed to live like vampires by night and turn up to school the next day and do work, I struggled. Um, so my mum, who had returned to study to become a careers education teacher, I think because she had the four kids and she knew she had to, um, she and my dad had met at RMIT where they were both studying 
industrial chemistry. Um, so they were smart cookies. Um, uh, so, yeah, I dropped out of school. She gave me the weekend off and then gave me the option to get a job or go to secretarial school. So began my career as a secretary. I ended up getting a job at the history department at Melbourne University um, in Professor Blaney's office around the time of the Yellow Peril incident. I don't know whether, you know, the young ones know that. There you go, there's a bit of research. Um, my school friends by then had also begun their first year uni studies, so my social world didn't miss a beat. So it was around that time that I'd mentioned to someone, not my mother, that that acting business looked easy. Somehow that got back to her. So the careers education teacher got me to apply to the Victorian College of the Arts and bribed me 50 bucks if I would audition, if I got to that process. So began my career as an actor, interpreter. I probably just really unfairly portrayed my mother as a tyrant and me probably closer to the truth as a passenger in my own life. I like to think that I was open to new opportunities. One of the greatest gifts my mother gave me was the belief that I could do, mostly, anything if only I would apply myself. And that as a mother, you provide your children with as many possibilities as you can. Um, oh no, I've got so many stories anyway. But um, so when I referred to myself as being an actor interpreter, that's exactly what we were taught to be at VCA. Um, and I had a great run as one. I, I um, landed a major film role um, and an agent. You can't get an agent, oh, you've got a role, you can't get a role, yeah. Um, before even graduating from VCA. Um, and from there I got television roles and um, more importantly, excitingly for me, theatre roles, um, which turned out to be my passion. But as time went on, I realised that I was playing Aboriginal roles, mostly written and directed by non-Aboriginal people. And worse still, I was being used as an unpaid Aboriginal consultant, editor and writer on many of these productions. So, and here I, I want to utilise a quote that uh, resonated with me by... Um, Professor Gillian Triggs, uh, who presented at the recent um, International Women's Day IPA, IPA dinner, she said that um, she said that she had worked inside the system for the majority of her career, but it is only now I realise we need to work a bit more outside the system. The system is designed to protect the status quo. I kind of like that quote; it resonated. So around the time that I was realising that you know, I'm, I'm getting, doing a lot of unpaid work here. I was invited to attend the second National Aboriginal Playwrights Conference way back in 1989, where I was finally surrounded by people just like me, not just Aborigines, like artists, you know, theatre practitioners, creators. It was so exciting. So on my return to Melbourne with a new family and partner and friends, um, I was immersed, immersed in the vibrant local Aboriginal um, art scene here. And so began the life of Ilbidgeri, the longest running Aboriginal theatre group in the country. So Ilbidgeri was dedicated to creating Aboriginal theatre for Aboriginal people, by Aboriginal people. Uh, black bums on seats, basically. And how do you cultivate that? Aboriginal people aren't, you know, 
Theatre wasn't the place where they were going. How do we do that? Big challenges, and it continues to be. Um, I also, around that time, sort of started to question, uh, challenge the star system and what that means. And that's what um, I think Gillian was talking about as well. So, um, you know, what does success mean? What, what is success? Uh, and all those questions. So, um, hopefully, with Albidgery, we, we challenge that system. So, for example, by telling many stories, each actor had, you know, equal role and told... Um, Stolen, the play Stolen did that, told five, five actors telling many, many, many stories um, and went on, you know, to what's uh, told of the stolen generation. Um, so, you know, really, it was really exciting to be part of that and to, to um, you know, and it continues to this day, Albidgery. Um, highlights include a one-off production of Seven Sisters Dreaming, um, put on by Aboriginal women at Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. Um, I took on, like I thought it was just a, you know, a, a one-month gig. A year later, I was still going in every Monday to visit the, the women in um, Dame Phyllis Frost. And um, when they first started, I said, oh, here's the theatre, here's the stage, get up there. And I, nah, <laughs> going. By the end... They were dancing, they told their stories. It was the most amazing theatre production, you know, to be part of. Um, Chopped Liver, another production about Hep C. Um, so that, that production actually got um, people in prison um, wanting to, to be tested for the virus and to, and to get medical intervention. So I'm a true believer, theatre can change lives. It can save lives. So what would I tell my, my younger self? Most of the time it would be, don't, don't do that, don't go near that man, don't be a passenger. Um, you know, but I guess that has as much to do with my imposter syndrome issues and I guess I would tell myself, don't care so much about what other people think. You know, really basic stuff. Um, reflections. So many, but I guess, um, you know, that, oh, well, heck, why can't we kind of, you know, um, why, why can't I continue to be an actor all my life? Hopefully I'll get some amazing roles here on in. But, you know, I need an agent to get a job. Anyway, uh, so, so many things. I hope I've kind of stimulated a bit. Um, Theatre's still an amazing place, um, space and, uh, you know, we've still got a lot of stories to tell. Thank you very much. Kylie, that was, uh, that was really wonderful. Uh, so I'm, I'm Cordelia Fine, and, uh, oh, thank you. Obviously slightly taller than Kylie, as you can see. <laughs> and uh, so I'd start by beginning by talking a little bit about my, the current focus of my, of my work, my research. And it's really captured by a quite well-known saying, which is, we see things not as they are, but as we are. And this, of course, captures this truth that there's no such thing as immaculate perception. We don't just sort of directly observe the world and objectively see what it's like, but we perceive the world and construct the reality through this lens of our own beliefs and values and assumptions. 
And of course, there's this very pleasing image of scientific inquiry as a process that, of course, sort of is actually objective, that does actually manage to perceive things in an objective way. Uh, but unfortunately, it, 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 that's, that's not the case. And in fact, another quotation or saying that I love comes from apparently is very popular amongst anthropologists, which is, I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it. And I think this saying captures something really important about the scientific process, which is that, of course, it's also the case, particularly when you're studying uh, people, that your beliefs and your values and your assumptions, either consciously held or unconsciously, influence scientific practice. So they influence the hypotheses, the questions that you ask, and no less importantly, they also influence which research questions you don't ask. They, your assumptions and your values will influence the ways that that you choose to analyze your data, they'll influence how you will interpret those inevitably ambiguous data. Those values and assumptions and beliefs will influence uh, you know, which findings you consider important and emphasize and which ones get de-emphasized and in some cases will actually get lost altogether in the scientific uh, process and the process of citing work on and on. So really for the past 10 years, I've become quite fascinated with how this is at work in the study of the science of sex differences, and in particular the idea about biological and evolutionary contributions to uh, what men are like and what women are like and how they're different and how they're, same, how they're the same. Uh, I think my ex-husband would probably agree that my, my sort of mode is, te I tend to sort of the plain form of criticism is my, uh, is my great skill and expertise, but I do also try and be constructive in my criticism where I can. And so part of my work has also been to think about how we can make these assumptions about women and men and boys and girls, how we can make them a bit more visible and see it how they're at work in scientific practice and from that make some recommendations as to how scientific work in this area can be more rigorous and more reliable. And the reason I care about this is, you know, partly for reasons because it's good to have good science, but it's also because these scientific ideas have an impact in our minds and in our world and in our society. So, you know, you, if you do bad physics and you make a miscalculation that this table will fall over, it doesn't matter to the table, the table's not going to fall over anyway. But when you have scientific claims and findings about about women and men, and those findings sort of penetrate the public, the public, um, the, the public realm, and enter people's minds and influence their their beliefs and attitudes. Then, then that does actually have an effect. So, what we think about difference makes a difference. So, I've also been interested for a long time in how these uh, these beliefs we have about the underlying nature of women and men and the origins of those differences influence our judgments and our, and our, our gender-related attitudes. What, what are the effects on how we perceive people? How, what are the effects on how we perceive ourselves? What are the effects on our attitudes towards the prospects for a more equal society or even how we judge the moral responsibility of a either masculine or feminine transgression, depending on who actually transgresses? So that's part of my uh, current work and, and future work. So it was interesting, the second question was about the turning points in, uh, in the career. For me, it was harder to think of 
points which were straight, straight lines, because I've really had so many zigzags, which is quite, I think, fairly unusual for an academic career. So, uh, I mean, I began in my undergraduate degree as a psychologist, then I did a master's in criminology, and then I did a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, and then I went to work in philosophy for a bit, and then I became an un unemployed writer for a while. Um, then I went back to philosophy, and then I made a rather strange move and became a psychologist at business school, and then I went to a, a normal psychology department, sorry, I mean that in the non-judgmental sort of way about business schools, then I went back to the business school, and now I'm in history and philosophy of, of science, so I've had a very sort of zigzagged and turning uh, route where I've also turned back on myself um, a number of times, and as I said, they're sort of fairly unusual, I think, as an academic. But I think I've learnt a number of things from those turning points. So one is that although this may make me seem like a bit of a butterfly, sort of flitting from one thing to another and lacking commitment, in a sense, one thing that's been constant through all of that is a sort of knowing what makes me, if not quite happy, but, but content. And I think that's such... Uh, such an important thing for any, any career. I remember a long time ago after I'd finished my PhD and made, I suppose it was another turning point, decided not to stay on that lab and do traditional you know, neuroscience work, uh, reading a classic careers book, What Colour Is My Parachute? And, and learning that the things that really made me be in that state of flow were re research and writing and entertainment. And I think that you know, from the time that I got told off from my physics teacher at high school for describing the slope of a graph as dramatic. Um, I think that's really been a, a sort of constant theme, that sort of triad of, 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 um, of things that I do throughout, throughout my career. And it does, I think if I were just a sort of standard academic, I, d I don't think, I'd, I think I'd be a little bit, bit miserable. And I think for that, I am immensely grateful to my parents, both of whom we're very much of the view that there, you know, there's one piece of careers advice, you know, it's easier said than done, but work out what makes you happy and then find somebody to pay you to do it. And that's, that's, always, been, uh, that's always been their attitude and they both have work that they, that they love and is their, is their calling for them. And I'm very grateful for the gift of, of modeling that for me. But I think um, secondly, what I've learned is that because I have worked in so many different um, disciplines, that it's been incredibly personally and professionally enriching. It's just been fantastic to learn about how different disciplines look at the same object in, in different, or you know, different object of study in, in different kinds of ways. You know, to be in philosophy, to be in a business school where there are people from <clears throat> finance and economics and psychology and strategy. Uh, I think, and, and, of, and, and perhaps most of all in the business school, to, you know, a bit unusually for an academic, because uh, nobody else wants to hang out with us, um, to, be, to have these interactions with the, with the students who are out there in the world dealing with the kinds of problems that we tend to only read about in, in journal articles and to get their perspectives on these, these very complex things. So I feel very lucky and privileged to have had the opportunity to have all those very enriching experiences and also to not be shy of working with people who come from other disciplines. There's a, there's a paper, an academic paper, with the wonderful title, uh, Worlds, The World Has Problems While Universities Have Disciplines. And I think that's a really good point, that we do tend to sort of have this very single-minded focus. And if you can bring together people with different backgrounds and different training and expertise and perspectives, it's going to be uh, so much more productive. 
And I think from a personal point of view is that in, in some ways you feel, uh, you know, Kylie refers to the imposter syndrome. You think, well, here I am, I'm a, you know, am I an academic, am I a writer? But I think you sort of, when you have that diversity within yourself, so to speak, and um, instead of seeing it as a flaw, you know, I'm master of all trades and, sorry, jack of all trades and masters of one, or I haven't quite taken the right route, or why haven't I taken a straight line after everyone else, but to recognise the value in, in those experiences. So um, I think it goes without saying that my academic work enriches my writing, but I think uh, it's over, often underestimated how much writing for a, a popular audience can actually enrich your academic thinking because you're forced to write in a clear way without using jargon as shortcuts that can actually obscure the meaning of, of what, you're, what you're trying to say. So I think as a, you know, as a message is don't, don't see that kind of, you know, if people have unusual roots, see that as a, as a strength rather than a weakness. So in terms of what I would tell my younger self, as opposed to, well, you know, do more yoga now so I can reap the benefits uh, <laughs> later in my 40s. I would say tell my younger self that. Um, I think one thing I'd tell my younger self is, you know, we all have periods, I think, in our careers where we, we look at someone who's, you know, you know, a decade ahead of us and you, you just look at what they do and you think, God, I could just, I just couldn't do that. I could not do what they do. And I think the advice would be, don't say that. Not because in a kind of feel-good, empowering, yes, you can do it, because the point is that you can't do it, but that's okay. But that's not the right person to be asking, could I do that job? I mean, I think about when I was in my 20s and, you know, a PhD student and the first time that I had to, you know, give a presentation, a, you know, five-minute presentation and my legs were wobbling so much I could barely make my way up to the podium and I remember spending, you know, weeks and weeks crafting the world's most boring popular science piece about my internally boring research. And, um, you know, if someone said, well, you know, could you write a book? Could you write to a deadline? Could you give a lecture uh, to, to um, MBA students who are ready to eat you alive? You know, I couldn't have done it. You know, I actually couldn't have done it then. But then I've had 20 years now to sort of acquire a few skills along the way. And, and now I, I can do these things. And I can't wait to be another 10 years older and think about all the things that I'll be able to do then that I, that I can't do now. So I think the, the advice there is, like, don't get be put off by thinking about these people who you hugely admire. I mean, admire them, be inspired by them. But the people you want to ask, could I do that, is just the person who's one step along the journey ahead of you in, in where you want to get to, because that's going to be much more uh, comforting for you uh, and inspiring rather than off-putting. And in terms of the advice that I'd give, um, I've become a bit, a bit of an, in, um, uh, started sort of being a bit evangelical about professional purpose. Uh, I teach this to, to, to my students. I really encourage them to spend some time thinking about uh, their professional purpose. And for many of you, maybe you'll know exactly what this is, but for others, it's really worth thinking about. So what I mean by that is questions like, what do you want to do with the knowledge and skills that you have? Uh, what is it that you want to learn over the course of your career? What are the, what are the things that you want to contribute to your, to your profession, to your industry or society? And I think these are useful questions to ask for a number of reasons. 
One is that, you know, particularly if you're young and talented and there are lots of different directions you could go in, it can be making those decisions about which way to go can be really agonizing. You can feel like there's a right answer and if you're just smart enough, you know what that is. And uh, my stepmother, who is um, a really very wonderful and wise uh, woman and philosopher at, uh, professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, uh, has written that this is just the wrong way about thinking about these kinds of hard choices. Actually, hard choices give us a really important opportunity uh, to work at who we are. So what she says is, uh, to quote her, Hard choices are precious opportunities for us to celebrate what is special about the human condition, that the reasons that govern our choices as correct or incorrect sometimes run out. And it is here in the space of hard choices that we have the power to create reasons for ourselves to become the distinctive people that we are. And I think part of that process of working out your purpose is part of that process of working out you know, there are no reasons that people can give me that are rational reasons that I should do this rather than that. I need to think about who I am, who I actually want to be. And that thinking about your purpose is part of that um, really uh, wonderful thing to be, to be able to do. Another thing to, reason to think about purpose is because it can be such a source of uh, persistence uh, and motivation, as I'm sure many, many of you will know. Uh, when you look at uh, studies of uh, who, who, who continues in uh, tertiary education degrees, for example, it's a sense of, a sense of purpose is a very strong predictor of whether people will complete their degrees or not. And, you know, every job, occupation, role has some tedious uh, aspects to it, dull, unpleasant things. And, uh, you know, thinking about what the purpose is behind it can, you know, it's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go around. When I go into a dull committee meeting, I'm thinking about, you know, the purpose of the university and how this committee is. Uh, and, you know, amazingly enough, it does, it does actually help. I think in, uh, in our time-poor societies as well, thinking about your purpose can help to make you smarter about what you spend your time and energy on. Of course, some, sometimes things just fulfill the purpose of being able to pay the rent or uh, you know, buy, the, buy the groceries, but we can also think about when opportunities present themselves to us, is, is this gonna help me learn what I wanna learn? Is this gonna help me contribute what I want to contribute? Is, is this gonna be part of what I want to be remembered for? Thinking, having a very explicit idea of our purpose can help us answer those, those questions. And finally, I think, you know, all of us at some point in our careers face ethical challenges. We'll be under some kind of pressure uh, to do something that is in conflict with our, our ethical values. And I think having a strong sense of your professional purpose, unless, of course, your professional purpose is simply to, you know, rise up the, as far up the ladder as you can and make as much money as you can, if you have a professional purpose that's a bit more grounded, uh, speaking, up, uh, speaking up against ethical conflicts is a, is a very difficult thing to do, but I think having a strong sense of your professional purpose, what it is that you are at work for, uh, can be a, a source both of courage uh, and a source of arguments. You know, this, this is not what our organisation is about, and you sort of think if only some more people in the, the finance industry had, you know, kept sight of a professional purpose of, you know, we're, we're supposed to be enhancing people's financial well-being, then of course we might not have seen so many um, terrible things happening in there that we actually that we actually have. So that's my final piece of advice around professional professional purpose and keeping keeping sight of that always. 
And that's, that's all from me. Thank you very well. Obviously, I'll, I'm not leaving straight away. I'll be there later. But uh, thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to be able to speak about myself for 15 minutes. I can't often get away with that at home. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Um, I hope I don't mind if I read from some notes because I'm pumped up with Panadol and this will help me stay on track. Um, I'm um, an artist and my work is in the gallery on the side there. The portrait of the artist is a young woman from 1974 to 2017. And I'm going to take a couple of those images and use them to talk about my life at the time. But first, my introduction. Um, in my experience as both an artist as an educator, so I can't see it that far, um, what often may seem to be a very small change in attitude or action can subsequently result in quite significant outcomes. This is often called the butterfly effect. The butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon jungle which sets off a chain of atmospheric events that subsequently result in a major storm somewhere else in the world. Um, so the images that I'm s selecting are associated with incidences in my life where I maybe was the butterfly to begin with, along with a lot of other women, where a very simple action, attitude or a word by individuals or collectively by uh, the group created a groundswell that, you know, did result in this show, has resulted in a lot of advancements for women. I went to art school in the early 70s. Only one of the lecturers was a woman. We did not learn about female artists in art history. The male lecturers preferenced the male students and many tutorials were conducted in the male-only main bar of the pub. It was not until I was in final year that the female students convinced the more enlightened male students to join us in the ladies' lounge. After all, we had campaigned together to um, protest for, against conscription and the Vietnam War. So we felt equal. So they came into the ladies' lounge with us. Eventually, the lecturers had no alternative but to follow us if they wanted to divvy out their wisdom. I might add one of their words of wisdom was female art students make good artist wives. Um, eventually, we um, ventured into the main public bar and eventually that set off the course of eliminating the segregation. You're not as old as me, but the main bar used to be for men. You wouldn't probably know this. And the ladies' lounge was where women were. Now it's called just the lounge. And we can go in the bar. Um, anyway, we'd all read Germaine Greer, The Female Eunuch. I think in 1972 it came out. So there's no way we were going to put up with this and we weren't going to become artist wives. I can put my image up now, I think. Um, when I left art school, I did a dip ed mainly because I had a very meagre scholarship and it was another year to keep it going. I rented a studio. I rented a studio um, 
with a, a male colleague for $20 a week for the whole floor. And this is my studio here. Um, but the photo over right on the your left is uh, me getting ready for my first exhibition. Um, when I left art school, away from the male lecturers and away from that sort of thing and with a burgeoning women's movement, literature was starting to come out from America, from um, London, and we were sort of like hungry for whatever we could get. And so there was a sense that there was something brewing. Not quite sure what, but something at that stage. And one of the things I started to do was use fabric sewing, which was unheard of and expected to be called fine art. So I started challenging notions of um, what you make art out of. When I held my first exhibition, I wrote one woman show on the invitation. Choosing to write one woman show as opposed to a one man show was a major statement at that time. It meant you wanted to be recognised as a woman and as a serious artist in a predominantly male art world. It was not just describing gender, but it was a stance, a declaration, a political statement. Um, of course, you don't write one woman show now, you write one person, solo exhibition. So that um, butterfly effect that women started to do, standing apart in order to stand back in again, or creating a new world. So, to illustrate that butterfly effect, um, exhibitions are now, as I said, one person and solo shows. And the outside art world, and outside the art world, non-gender specific language is also quite commonplace, evolving from chairman to chairwoman to chairperson, policeman, policewoman, and now police officer. And so the ricochet effect is that it does eventually permeate and you do get that, um, you kind of get there in the end, but sometimes you have to push it to begin with. Um, the shot in the middle is um, me getting ready for the next show, which coincided with the uh, Lucy Lippard visit at the Ewing and George Payton Gallery. So it was just at the cusp of what was happening in the feminist art world. Or with, I wasn't, I would say I would not call myself a feminist at that time. I didn't think I knew exactly what it meant. Probably felt I didn't quite qualify. I'm not quite sure where I was standing, but I was definitely a woman artist. I keep hearing that song, I am woman, hear me roar as I say that. Um, next slide. Okay, this shot here. Oh, that one. Uh, so we're flashing now to 1979. When I was initially invited to participate in the Sydney Biennale in 1979, only three Australian artists were included. I was one of them and I was the only female. However, there was a groundswell at that time of dissatisfaction in the Australian art world between young, younger artists. Firstly, 
Because it was a significant international exhibition held in Australia, it should include more Australian artists. And secondly, because of the butterfly effect, 50% um, should be women. A big ask in 1979. Um, excuse me if I am getting out of breath. I have a lung infection, so every now and then I might just have to catch my breath. Amazingly, after protests, lobbying and letter writing, the demands were addressed. The number of Australian artists was increased and 50% of those Australians were women. Overall, there were still less women in the show, but at least 50% of the Australians were women. So that was a victory. Um, this is an example of the storm that changed attitudes, starting from the butterfly effect. It resulted from initial conversations and actions by small groups of women, buoyed by the Lucy Lippard lecture when she came to Australia in 1975, in which she only wanted to speak to women artists. And I must say, there's a lot of artists today who still can't get over that. Um, which, which resulted in the formation of the Women's Art Forum, which, result, which then, out of that, came the Women's Art Registry and Lip Magazine. And along with other publications, articles, curated exhibitions that focus particularly on elevating the work of women artists. I supported the Biennale protest, and when asked by the press, I spoke out for the cause. In fact, that image there is a bit of a publicity shot that was in the Sun Herald with the heading, More Women Should Have a Place. Um, as the only female artist initially invited, I could have dined out on this for years. Um, but sometimes you have to speak up to the detriment of your own personal um, position. So I decided to support um, the cause, the group. Um, sometimes you have to stand up. You know, you just have to speak out. And I did uh, write in, the, in my artist statement as well. Um, I declared my support for women artists, um, which when the feminist backlash came, um, it hit home then. But, um, but now it's it's great because the backlash is finished. Um, I also, in this artist statement, advocated for the recognition of traditional skills such as sewing, weaving, um, quilt making, that traditionally has been seen as you know, women's work and decorative arts. Um, I said it should be elevated as a fine art and um, the techniques and strategies should be embraced by the fine artists. And I was doing uh, work, you know, incorporating, uh, you know, decorative art aspects. The butterfly effect, the recognition of, you know, decorative art skills and techniques is really interesting to see how it's evolved. In the, 19, in the 2017 Venice Biennale last year, it was very highly centred on fabric and textile constructions and works. And this is your Biennale. Uh, it was quite amazing to see. And now movements like craftism, craftivism, 
which is craft and activism, are seen as a major visual, art, visual arts movement. Next. Just get my breath. The next image I want to talk about is the artist as a woman, an educator and a mother. When I had my children in the late 80s, it was considered pretty risky if you wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. For this reason, many of my female peers elected not to have children. In terms of the butterfly effect, many younger women artists uh, now have children, which is great to see. It's no longer seen as a choice, you know, you do one or the other. Um, and they've often cited me as a bit of a role model. I think it might have been that cool hairstyle that was, um, <laughs> that helped that. Um, but there's more to this photograph, this one in the middle holding my son, Ivan, when he was a baby in front of one of my works. It's also a portrait of the first female head of the painting department at the VCA. I'd previously been the first and only female lecturer in the painting department. Just to correct, I'm not the first woman. B. Maddock was the first woman. I was just in the painting department. The painting department is sort of like the last male bastion of... Um, so it was a bit of a victory in that way. And I had come from starting off as a secondary high school teacher for about four or five years as my day job and fact, focusing on my art career. And then eventually got a little sessional job and then that turned into a part-time job and then that turned into a bit more of a part-time job. So it is that kind of gradual, slow progression into another world. Um, and in that world, as a woman and a feminist by this stage, well, a lot earlier than that, um, it enabled me to address quite a few issues that surprisingly, you know, when we look at it now, they're very small, very small, but very significant at the time. For example, changing the language in the handbook to he, she, rather than just he. That was quite a battle with the other staff. We've all heard the argument that he means everybody, and you say, no, it doesn't. Um, lobbying for more female staff, um, so we were able to, you know, once you're in there, um, you have a voice. Um, it might, it's hard, because sometimes you're the only voice, but I was actually very lucky because Janine Burke had started in the teaching art history about six months before I had, so we were kind of, you know, we'd help each other out. Uh, we restocked the slide collection and the library um, to increase the visibility of women artists. And we created a, a level playing field for all the students, regardless of gender. It was, you know, they talk about what's happening with the um, sexual harassment today. And I keep waiting for the art world to come up. Um, it was quite a different time. You know, it was quite, even in the interviews of uh, female students, you know, there'd be comments about, oh, you know, she's attractive, you know, she's got big boobs, let's get her in. You know, and you're there, you're there as the other lecturer, so you've got to say, you have to say, you know, you can't say that, or you'd make a joke, I mean, a 
attractive guy comes in, you do the same. <laughs> so they can see it. It's just not on. And so it's little by little by little until we get today. Um, you know, most art schools now have approximately 50% ratio male-female staff. Definitely there's still more female students. And in 2000, the VCA appointed their first female head of the art school. Okay, 13 years after that shot, but a great achievement, you know, first female possibly, oh, for the VCA, there's only one other female head of an art school, and that was Betty Churcher at Preston in the 70s. So the butterfly effect, sometimes it's instantaneous, but sometimes it can take 13 years. So brace yourself. Okay, we can have the next one. At the time I had children, it was generally very uncool in the art world to present oneself as a mother. Although children were often the subject of paintings and photographs by women, the actual child was not welcome in the art world. And I do recall being chastised um, by two women, actually, uh, for bringing a child in a pram to an opening. Um, I also remember uh, had, I did a book cover for a friend, um, for nothing, of course, as you do, and I just had my second child, um, no babysitting, you know, uh, brought the child along with me to an interview. I thought it would be a very low-key interview. They were completely um, shocked that I would, you know, come to a meeting. I left, had to leave the baby in the foyer, and they were pretty tough on me because I was fighting firstly for my own rights. I'd cut my artwork in half and stuck it on the cover, and I wasn't happy about it. So I was fighting for, um, you know, that's not right. Um, but with a baby in tow, I did feel that they weren't taking me seriously. And what? thing was really nice is 20 years later, this woman comes up to me and says, are you Elizabeth Gowan? I said, yeah. And she says, I am so sorry. I was one of the, I remember you came in for this interview about the book cover and you had your baby and we were such shits to you. And she says, now I've had my baby, I understand. <laughs> so that was a nice butterfly effect, I thought eventually. Um, even the friend who I had um, doing the cover for accused me of attempting to boycott her career because in order to replace my slither of an artwork with one that wasn't cut in half, she felt I was slowing down the uh, launch of her book, which it didn't. It all worked out well in the end. Um, the centre photo, there's three photos here. This centre one is the publicity shot. I'm, a, I'm pregnant, so it's cut off. You don't show it. I was pregnant with my second child, so this photo was cropped to disguise the fact. The one on the, your left of that is, um, and the one on the right, on each side of that, are snapshots. Picture of me with my son as a toddler, and the other one, picture of me pregnant with the second child. 
I would have never considered to have exhibited them until 1996. So that's how long it took. Um, because you just don't show pictures of yourself professionally in that light. Um, again, younger model, younger student, um, sorry, artists have um, noted that um, seeing me um, continuing my art career while having children was a, a big incentive for them. I didn't know that at the time. Um, but I've actually had two role models. My first one was my friend and photographer, Sue Ford, who is about 10 years older than me, but she had kids. I really didn't know many other artists with children, and she seemed to effortlessly, effortlessly manage children and a career. And my second was actually a line drawing, a line drawing by Benita Eli, published in the 1979 Lip magazine of British sculptor Barbara Hepworth, pregnant with triplets. We were absolutely amazed, not only that she had triplets, she actually ended up having four, which she brought up during the 30s and 40s while developing and maintaining an international art career. And we thought, why don't we know this? We were so surprised, not, you know, there is nothing in any art books, there might be now. There was this dual role was never mentioned, there's no photographs of her in, in any way, anywhere near a child. Um, so that was back then. Now, of course, you might have more honesty. You know, people have all sorts of lives and, uh, you know, that is quite um, acceptable to be who you are. Um, so in recognition of the butterfly effect, I'd say it's no longer necessary to hide your life. Next one. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm sort of ending with this one over here of the floor of the Sydney Olympic Superdome, which I was awarded in 1999. Um, and I'm thought I'd put it in because sometimes in the art world bubble there's a lot of things that you take for granted by this stage, by 1999. Um, but I was then taken well out of the, that art bubble and having to work with teams of people for almost a year on a major building site that was predominantly all-male crew of architects, engineers, project managers, tradesmen, construction people. And if you think it's hard to get a tradesman to do something for you at home the way you want it and on time, try getting them to do a thousand square metre terrazzo floor completed professionally satisfactory and on time ready for the opening. What I learnt from that was that sometimes you are actually in the middle of a storm. You're not the one fluttering away, creating little nice things for the future. And sometimes you actually are in the middle of a floor where another butterfly, probably a male, has already started something uh, and you've got to try and survive in that. And it is hard when you are, you know, 
a lone female um, in, in some circumstances, trying to get um, people, not only female, but also an artist. Um, you know, artists still are seen often as, you know, wacko, you know, eccentric, obsessive, compulsive. Women artists are often seen as obsessive, a bit petty, you know, a bit over the top. And so you carry all that with you when you go into a situation like that. And it's very hard to be taken seriously, so you have to hold your ground and just keep um, pushing until, it's, um, until you do get that job done. So my advice to um, my younger self and to younger artists, or younger women, sorry, is you can affect change in many ways as an individual and as a member of a group. Sometimes seemingly small gestures and actions can bring about significant change. Sometimes it will take a very long time to amend things, but don't lose heart. Don't be afraid to speak up. Think of yourself as the role model to someone else. Stand your ground and seek the wisdom of your elders, me. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm still marvelling at the idea of someone having four children at once and having an international career. That's incredible. Uh, I'll begin with the present and what my current career focus is. It starts with a very simple proposition, to increase the number of women elected to public office at all levels of government, at local government, state government and federal government. Achieving this, of course, is a much more complicated proposition. Why do I see this as an important goal? Because I don't see how we can be truly equal in Australian society where men dominate key decision-making forums, like the parliament. For this reason, I agreed to be the academic coordinator of the philanthropically funded Pathways to Politics program. It is run out of the School of Government at Melbourne University and modelled on the Harvard Universities from the Harvard Square to the Oval Office program, which has been running for more than a decade. 2017 was our program's second year and my first as its academic coordinator. I bring in ex experts, former politicians, current politicians, speechwriters, those with media experience, and use my knowledge and experience to teach women the skills needed to succeed in an election. This involves skills such as speechwriting, how to address the media, how to engage social media, how to network, an important aspect of fundraising during a campaign. In the program, we examine ethics in politics, we question what is good policy making, we consider not only the importance of words, but also of numbers, of polling, of how to use data in elections. We learn how to read opinion polls and how to reach voters. So far, 49 women have been through the program and 18% of them have either been elected or pre-selected for public office. It is a strong start and I hope we can do better. 
So if any of you have a desire to represent your country, your people, your community, applications are now open as of International Women's Day for our 2018 program. It is one of many ways that we as a community can address the gendered structural inequalities of Australian society. And I do hope that you will help me spread the word about the program to interested friends or colleagues, and more importantly, the merits, of course, of equal political representation in Australia. I care about this because various points of my life have flagged to me how unfair society can be. I have seen up close why gender inequality and other forms of disempowerment stop people achieving the very best for themselves and by extension for our society. In the next few minutes, I'll tell you some of these light bulb moments and turning points in my career that has, up until this point, led me to academia. My career path is perhaps an unusual one. It's a little like the Murray River. It straddles two divides, like Victoria and New South Wales, but in my case, it straddles media and politics. It is also marked by lots of bends and turns that might look unexpected to some, but be viewed from above makes some sort of sense with a continuity of its own, at least in my mind. I grew up in the Western districts of Victoria on a dairy farm, and it was an ideal childhood for me, full of action, full of plenty of independence. As both my parents worked on the farm and were very civic-minded, I learned by their example. They were always at meetings, fundraising for the school, the school council, executive roles in the Country Women's Association, the Ploughing Association, the Victorian Dairy Farmers of Australia. Politics was the language of our dining room table, and it still is. I learned that if you wanted something done, you either learned to do it yourself or you used the power of language to persuade others to help. In this regard, questions of gender were not delineated. I was given the same opportunities as my older brother and my younger sister to help out on the farm. As my mother liked to say, hands have no sense of gender, just get in and help. This involved hours after hours raking hay, cutting silage, milking cows. I loved the tractor. It gave me a chance to listen to the ABC and to contemplate ideas bigger than the paddock I was circling. On weekends or summer nights after school, I would settle my horse, pack a sandwich and head off around the district for a few hours, through the fields, down other farmers' laneways or little used dirt tracks. There was no mobile phone to keep track of me only believed that I would be fine and I'd be home in time for dinner. But gender played a role in other ways. My mother always cooked the meals. My father delivered the calves in the early hours of the morning. These roles were rigid and inflexible. They carried unspoken expectations. It is with this expectation that when I finished my secondary education at the local technical school, where I learned to weld and solder and build things out of wood, that I moved to Melbourne to train to be a nurse. I was one of 79 in my group of mostly women, the second last group to train on the job to be a nurse at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. As you can see, I haven't moved very far just across the road to Melbourne University in over 20 years. But even this wasn't uncomplicated. I had to be 18 before I could start nursing, and I was only 17 and a half, so I had to wait until the May intake and this drove my mother nuts. She said to me, why don't you find a job? And I said, well, what job can I do in the interim? She said, if you could do anything you wanted at all, what would it be? And I said, well, I want to be a journalist. 
she said, we'll ring up the local newspaper and ask them for a job. I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I did. The editor, Tony Pritz, said, sure, come in for two weeks. You can have some work experience. So I came in for two weeks, and I really enjoyed it, and I said to him at the end, is there any chance I could stay on for six months? And he said, unfortunately, there's no more work here. And the next day, as it would be, the Collie Herald is next door to the TAB, and the sports editor was hauled away for embezzling $25,000. And so Tony Pritz rings me up and said, would you like to fill in? And so I stayed there for the next six months until I was ready to go nursing. Once nursing, my cohort and I grew up fairly fast. By week 10, already two weeks full-time on the wards, I was wrapping up bodies for the morgue, nursing a young man my own age with horrific head injuries after being hit by a car after a party went wrong. I held the hands of the boy's mother as she watched him take his last breath. We all cried. I saw the human body as neither male or female, but as broken with bits that needed to be fixed. There was no time for self-consciousness. The wards were a busy place, and the hierarchy that kept order in its place was at times ruthless. It was on the wards in the operating theatres that I learned about power. It was mostly men performing the surgeries who we scrubbed for, who made, who made us learn their exact glove sizes and memorise their likes and dislikes to preempt handing over the instruments without speaking. It was male anaesthetists that pretended not to hear my questions because I was just a student nurse. I learned that after growing up on a farm where I could do anything, I was now a tiny cog in a very big machine. I knew I wasn't the type of nurse that my friends were. I learned how to do it, but it was not as natural to me as it seemed to be for others. But I also knew I didn't want to be the other type, the bully on the ward. I kept thinking about journalism and decided to enrol in an arts degree while I was finishing my nursing training. Once I graduated from nursing, I grabbed a friend and we decided to use our nursing skills to fund our way around the world. We worked for up to two weeks at a time, mainly in British homes for very wealthy uh, Brits looking after their aged relatives, and then we'd backpack to our next destination in Europe. It was during this time that I saw some of Europe's most famous art, its architecture. I learned of its history. I knew then I wanted to return to full-time study to put these sites into a wider context. So I returned to Australia, enrolled full-time in the, the degree I'd started while I was nursing, and nursed night shifts and weekends to pay the bills. If I was going to do this, I knew I had to do it myself. When I saw the Age newspaper advertised for cadets, I applied. I knew I had some life experience and six months of writing experience at the Collar Carroll that many others would not have had. I was one of 600, I was actually, there was four of us out of 600 to be accepted in what was then one of the best gigs in town. On the first day, it was the veteran police reporter, John Sylvester, who came up to me and said, journalism is a front row ticket to the greatest show in town. And he was right. When Princess Di died, when the Republican movement was defeated, when Jaden Lesky's body was found in the Blue Rock Dam, when the MUA took over the docks, we were the scribes for the first draft of history. Whatever society threw at us, we were waiting to hear the details, and in this way, the way the whole gamut of society presents itself to you, young, old, rich, poor, deserving, undeserving, 
it was not so different to nursing. Working at the age again, I had an opportunity to see power and gender up close. Most of the senior editors were men. The important people that I interviewed in my various roles in industrial relations, politics, police rounds were mostly men. When I was promoted, it was with a third of the pay of my predecessor. He was a senior man. It made me angry. I asked, why should I do the same job for less? And I was told to bide my time. But I was young and I was impatient. So when Bill Shorten approached me to leave the age and be his first media officer, I was tempted. I'd known Bill for about five years at that point, and for those of you who also know him, he could be very charming and persuasive. The line he used that got me to leave Spencer Street was an analogy to football. Why watch from the sidelines when you can put on your footy boots and run around the oval yourself, he asked. It was an enticing offer. So I moved to the Australian Workers' Union. Bill had a vast agenda, very few resources, but plenty of energy. We worked together well, jumping on and off planes, in and out of meetings. He would introduce me to anyone who came into his office. He kept to his promise that I would see things up close, on the field, so to speak. I would write his speeches and media releases with planned strategy and policy. I'd marvel at his skill to turn to a stop work meeting at some factory where members would look him up and down with disdain, with slow and little regard. And then he'd start speaking. He knew their language and within 10 minutes, he'd get a rousing applause. At the union, I understood the power of words, the importance of inspiring people, of offering hope over fear, not the reverse that we too often see in politics today. Bill encouraged me to keep studying. He afforded me time off to do my master's in international politics. He believed that education led to advancement. It was a lesson from his mother and it was one he'd experienced for himself. By this stage, I'd married and our first child was on its way. As fun as it was working for Bill, I felt it was a younger person's game. I had lost the agility to drop everything and jump on a plane or answer a phone call at 2am just after I'd put the baby back to sleep. My husband and I did a year in Cornwall for his work, where I had my second child. I felt bereft not working, so I decided to do something that Bill had encouraged me to do. Identify what you're good at, what you can learn from others, and play to your strengths. So I wrote a book, then incorporated my husband's knowledge of medicine, my knowledge of nursing, and my journalism. It was a book about how to have a healthy gut, probably a little bit uh, too early for its time, but it sold out in six weeks. When I returned to Australia, it was back to journalism to produce John Fain's morning program at the ABC. I'm not naturally an early riser, as John Fain will certainly attest to, but for that show, I made an exception. It was an adrenaline ride, as we sped in top gear over the big issues of the day. Radio was a sharp contrast print where you focus on one story and by the end of the day it might have all been in vain. In radio you work as a team across lots of issues at once to produce the best radio that you can for the audience. But the superficiality of radio bothered me after a while. I wanted to dig deeper into issues. So after some contemplation, I resigned from the ABC to do a PhD. By this time, my third child was nine months old. 
Again, I saw value in Bill's comments of playing to your strengths, and so I chose to do my doctorate in an area where I already had some knowledge, combining my experiences of politics with journalism to understand how the changing business model of print media was impacting on the production of investigative journalism and, in turn, the media's role in providing democratic accountability. Three years later, the PhD was done. My supervisor was the very impressive Sally Young, I was employed full-time at Melbourne University teaching subjects I love, campaigns and elections, strategic political communication, and of course, pathways to politics. Academia is not always easy. The difficult part for me is finding time to do things as well as I'd like and ensuring I have time left over, important time for my children and partner. It's a hard job because you're your own worst enemy. Like many roles, your goals are as broad as your imagination. There is no official switch off time. But I also know it is not life or death. In developing a career in the arts, I have learned in my middle years that it is women role models who have supported me. Sally Young, Carol Schwartz, who sponsors Pathways to Politics, among others. I've learned that we need both male and female mentors to succeed. I've also learned the importance of perseverance and not being deterred if things don't go our way at first. But rather than give advice to my younger self, I would ask my younger self to remind me of the importance of keeping perspective, of seeing the world with fresh eyes and with a youthful optimism where hope reigns over fear. This is what I want to imbue in my own children the importance of doing things that matter to you rather than because you're scared not to. It's this part of the evening where I'd like to hear some questions for you, from you, and to have a bit more of a discussion as a group with our speakers. And I thought what I might start with is, I imagine there's no one in the room who's not familiar with the former Prime Minister Julia Gillard's now famous misogyny speech. In that speech, directed at then opposition leader Tony Abbott, Julia Gillard points to an old remark of Tony Abbott's in an interview in which she said, he had said, what if men are by physiology or temperament more adapted to exercise authority or issue command? Cordelia, you probably feel this question's coming your way. <laughs> you have extensively researched biological differences between the sexes. Is there any evidence that men are better suited to lead than women? Well, yeah, so this was really the, the subject of my last book, Testosterone Rex, um, which, I mean, when you look at the, the traits, you know, people who work in psychology and management science have said, look, these are the traits that are important for leadership. 
Um, for successful leadership, uh, women actually on average are slightly better leaders than, than men. And when you look at the specific traits that there are, you know, there are average differences between men and women, but there's no overall advantage for, for, one, for, for one sex over the other. But I think that the larger, big, what, what uh, a philosopher of biology calls the biological big picture is this idea that, you know, women can't, you know, okay, women could be, can lead, but they actually don't want to. They don't want these positions of power and authority, and it's because for evolutionary reasons, men have just evolved to want to seek status and resources so that they can appeal to women, young women in particular, so that they can mate and produce hundreds of, of offspring. And answering this question, it, sort of, it did take me an entire book to deconstruct this very familiar science. But basically, the short, the short answer is evolutionary biology has, um, has really been showing how much more complex this picture actually is. And it's, sort of, it's been unraveling all these long-held assumptions, for example... That, that reproduction is very, very cheap for men, because, or males in particular, because all they, they contribute this single sperm, whereas the female contributes this big, juicy egg. And, of course, if she's a mammal, then she also gestates and lactates. So reproduction is very expensive for females. Even the best re reproducing female can only produce a few offspring, whereas males have this potential to hit, hit the jackpot. Well, actually, reproduction isn't that cheap for males, because, you know, as... People will probably know from uh, second-hand experience. It's not usually one single sperm that's delivered, but a whole, you know a few hundred million. And, and, and humans, in particular, have um, very inefficient sexual activity. So it very, very rarely we're not designed in a way that, it, as it is in other animals, where it's linked to hormones. So you only take the time to have sexual activity when things are sort of geared up for, for fertilisation. So we have incredibly inefficient sexual activity, and that, of course, reduces the capacity for men to go out and produce these, these hundreds of females. And, of course, the idea that competition isn't important for female mammals is also something that female, usually female evolutionary biologists have been challenging. So they've, they've realised, actually, if you've got to produce this biologically expensive offspring, it's actually really helpful if you've got a really great territory and if you've got access to the best feeding sites. And, you know, some, some of these female mammals actually go along and, um, you know, harass some of the other females or even eat their offspring. So it's not, you know, it's not all tea and cakes in the, uh, amongst the females in the mammalian, mammalian kingdom. So this idea that competition and resources are really important for, for males is another one of these myths that, uh, that has been um, slowly being unravelling in, in evolutionary biology. It just takes a little while for others, others to, to catch up. So that's a very short answer to a, a long question. Have you had that opportunity to give that answer to Tony Abbott? Well, I should send him a copy of my <laughs> book, I guess, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it's often easier, although very heartbreaking, to diagnose problems and to offer solutions. And Kylie, I wonder with the important work that you're doing at the Office of Prevention and Women's Equality, which is focused on addressing some of these structural inequalities between men and women and also addressing family violence, if I granted you one wish to allow one aspect of inequality to be achieved tomorrow, what would it be? Uh, I guess I work in the I, I work in the um, uh, family violence prevention space, so um, you know, really simply, um, and and it also um, in Aboriginal context. Um, uh, family violence, so we don't only just concentrate on women as victim survivor, and, um, 
I'm getting all, I don't know, um, for violence, you know. Well, really, um, generally, it is um, uh, women who are victim survivors and, you know, whose, whose lives are in, incredibly, you know, so impacted, um, and the children and uh, the, you know, transgenerational trauma that, that um, ensues that, um, you know, oh, can we bring up our men, our, our boys, not to hit women? That would be really good. Thank you. I was reminded by Julie Gillard last week at the International Women's Breakfast that I attended that it was until 1983 women were required to get approval from their husbands if they were to apply for a passport, which I found rather shocking being 1983 that late. And it somewhat reminded me of Virginia Woolf's notion of a room of one's own, that women need to have their own spaces and means and particularly to have some economic uh, freedom and not be deferential to men. Elizabeth, we heard of some of the work that you've done and some of the groundbreaking moments in your career since the 1970s. Did you have a room of your own? What changes have you seen in gender politics during this time? Um, I've actually had 37 rooms of my own. Um, some of them have just been a table. Um, but, yeah, you definitely have to have a room of your own. You need a space where you can uh, think. I mean, literally, you need a space. I mean, you can find spaces um, outside of that. Um, that's uh, what you said about, you know, and um, independence. I think that's... I've always made my own salary. I've had, like, you know, always had a job, a day job, always supported my own art, even though I've been within relationships. I've always shared the child rearing right from the start. I mean, I don't think I could do it any other way by being dependent on, on someone else and not have that sense of oneself, which is what you get when you have the room of one's own, that sense of your own self, as opposed to you know, you as part of a, a, a partnership. Just that passport story, I do have a story. Um, when I first uh, went overseas in the uh, late 70s, I applied for my first passport, and I was married to another artist, and so when you had to send in your birth certificate, marriage certificate, three forms of identification, so I sent that in. My passport came back as Mrs... Elizabeth Arkley, who I was uh, married to, and I was like, ah! and it was too late to um, get a new passport. They just assumed that's my name. I mean, even though I'd put Gower and I just was always who I am. Um, so I rang them up and said, I have to have a new passport. I can't possibly go there. That's not my name. And so they put a sticker in my passport with an official stamp that said, alias Elizabeth Gower. <laughs> which I've still got. And when I got home, I got another passport. But it's not... Um, you are not legally obliged to change your name and obviously you don't need anyone's approval now to get a passport. But I'm surprised it was 83. I probably um, would have done that myself. Obviously, I had to fill out the form and do that too. Before I open to questions, and I hope you've got plenty of them, it may be too early to make a final assessment on this, but I wanted to ask each of you about what you think the significance is so far of the Me Too campaign or the It's Time. 
whether we are heading for something quite monumental with the next wave of feminism, or whether we're seeing perhaps a dark underbelly of a stacks-on approach or something in between. I mean, as probably the oldest person here, I'm absolutely excited by, or amazed and moved and excited by the Me Too campaign because we all have pe we all have friends and family and ourselves who have experienced that um, some kind of harassment or prejudice in some way. And so to have that publicly expressed and en masse and be heard, I mean, the fact that it's got this media coverage and the fact that, you know, it is out um, in the open, I think it's been fantastic. I don't know what's going to happen now because I know there's, you know, there's the slight sort of, oh, boring, heard that, you know, let's move on to the next issue. Um, but I would hope that uh, things are being addressed by it. I mean, it seems like things are being addressed, um, but whether they'll go far enough, I'm not sure. Kylie? Uh, I acknowledge that it's really important, but, I, but in the... In, uh, as a First Nation person, there's, you know, so many other issues and important issues that we have to deal with and, um, you know, our, our history as First Nation women is just as um, yeah, atrocious and, um, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, we're... We have a we live in a matriarchal society, Aboriginal society, and um, you know the incredible um, role models and women that I've had. So, you know, we've been living that for a long time. So, have many um, Indigenous women responded to the Me Too campaign? Or do they? Go on. Sorry, I'm 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 not aware that that many do. Yeah. I'm sure they do. I mean, I think we're, you know, most sophisticated, you know, savvy users of, you know, um, of social um, media, um, and of course we would. But I think also, you know, to put the cultural lens, the the um, is really uh, is what women, young women of today are doing more and more of. Yes. I mean, I have heard a lot of women talk about how they wouldn't um, participate in it because it's setting women up as victims. So I think there's two sides to the argument. A lot of um, there's a lot of concern that while it's a stance of power and taking, you know, telling the truth, there's also that fear, a little bit of a niggling fear that, uh, you know, is it a presentation of women as victim? Cody, what's your assessment so far? Yeah, I've, I've sort of more and more started to see the Me Too movement as a, as a kind of power struggle over risk. It's kind of a revolution in risk. And there's a, there's a wonderful uh, uh, academic who works in risk communication and, and assessment called Paul Slovak, and he says that defining risk is an exercise in power because when you define what the risks are in a situation, you're presenting the rational solution to the problem. And I think what we've seen in the Me Too movement is we've seen, with all these voices and stories, we've been forced to light these risks that women have just by being in the workplace, the risk of being harassed or assaulted or just the sort of daily indignities. And we've also been forced to recognise the risks to them, both the sort of professional and economic risks 
of speaking up about it. I mean, I remember there was a few years ago, there was the surgeon who, the, the female surgeon who came under such fire for sort of saying, you know, if a tra female trainee said to me about, you know, I've been asked for sexual favours, you know, in terms of career advice, I would say just submit to it because otherwise it's career death. And people didn't want to hear that message. But really what the Me Too movement has done is sort of pointed out these risks to women of, of speaking up. And of course the Me Too movement has also changed the stakes for organisations and for people who do, who do sexually harass. So I, I sort of see it as a bit of a, a tussle. And of course the backlash to that is these sort of perceived risks of going too far and all these women who bizarrely, having in, in the face of all this evidence of how difficult the costs to speaking up, the, the fear, apparently surveys show that men now are more fearful of women falsely accusing senior men of, of, uh, of sexual harassment, which is, which is, you know, doesn't seem to me to make any, any sense at, at all. But I think if the Me Too movement is to get some traction within workplaces, then people, you know, organisations need to address the two things that stop people from speaking out, which is fear of the consequences for them, for themselves and for their reputation, and the worry that I'll say something but nothing will happen. And whether that's the person who's the target of harassment or whether it's bystanders, organisations need to make sure that complaints are listened to and dealt with effectively and fairly. Um, and that, that they do protect people from repercussions. Again, this is easier said than done, but for the, we need to, to, to sort of handle those risks in the workplace for, for, for this new recognition of the risks for everyone involved, um, really to, to bring us all to the place I think we'd want to be, which is for these things to be handled well within organisations. I don't want to monopolise these wonderful women, so if you have a question, just raise your hand, we've got a roving microphone going through. Simple one back to you, and I'm thinking about Cathy Oak and her statements today as a local council member. Um, it's been in the paper, well, in the news today. I just want to know your political lens on the Me Too from your perspective. Uh, so everyone heard that uh, about Cathy Oak, who I think um, some of her allegations date back a number of years, and she said that she was upset that she didn't feel empowered enough to be able to speak out um, against the incursions of Robert Doyle, sexual incursions on her, and that she um, also didn't feel there was the uh, structures in place to be able to compl complain within her workplace that it was too much risk, because... Cordelia has just identified. Uh, I think what is monumental about that uh, issue is that other women have come forward in support of um, Tessa Sullivan and Kathy Oak uh, and another woman through a wife of a doctor at the Royal Melbourne and that they were taken seriously and um, that a report's now come down and that men are not immune anymore. The Lord Mayor, directly elected in the form of Robert Doyle, uh, has had to show consequences for his actions. It might have taken some time to do it, but I think that sends a powerful message, the beginning of a powerful message to other women that there can be consequences for people who do abuse their power. Um, I think she probably shouldn't be too hard on herself for taking time to do that. It is 
a, a brave move to be a, a lone voice. But I think it shows that um, once you do speak up, it's very rare that you're going to be the only voice because this is not about... Um, it's not about sexuality. It's about power between the genders and abuse of power in this case. So I think all power to those women for um, speaking up. But I also do think there needs to be natural justice and due process. And I hope as a society we don't lose sight of that. And I think this case study with Robert Doyle has shown how it can be played out um, with fairness. Any other comments or uh, reflections? Sorry, this will be jumping topic a little bit, but I did have a question specifically for Cordelia, but any of you can answer, of course, because you're all strong women who will have advice on this topic. Um, but I'm a studying psychologist, specifically working in um, forensic areas, and one of my biggest aspirations is in future to do research and to teach. Um, but how, how would you approach that kind of a career and that kind of a line of work when so much of psychological you know, history and science has been based on, um, based from men's perspectives and things that were viewed as correct when it was oppressive to women or research that wasn't even based with women in mind and then coming as an academic woman into that space and teaching from a scientific perspective? Look, I, th I think there are reasons to feel very, very positive about um, the, the direction in psychology. I mean, one thing, I mean, this was not the goal of my book, but one thing that really comes out through it all, whether it's in evolutionary biology, whether it's in neuroscience, whether it's in uh, the, the relationship between hormones and behavior, or whether it's in gender psychology, what you, what you see over and over again is that so often the women scientists who are asking different questions and thinking, actually, does that assumption hold? These are the women who are actually progressing science by asking different questions and challenging those assumptions. And of course, there's nothing intrinsic about women that means that they ha you have to be female to ask those questions, but it just, you know, it's a sort of just a psychological reality that that's much more the case. And so they, that's, to me, this is one of the sort of un, unrecognised aspects of the importance of gender equality in, you know, I think of my own field first in science or psychology. It's not just because people should have equal opportunities or because, you know, psychology departments might become more productive in this, the sort of the business model for gender equality, but that it actually, it has an influence on the knowledge that's produced itself. And I think within within medicine and more generally within neuroscience, there's a growing concern about the fact that the male body has been used as a default, so the females as a kind of, you know, strange variant of the, the real body or the real brain. And there is a, there's a very strong push now to make sure that experiments, for example, include both males and females. There are issues around that in the sense that you have to do that research well, otherwise you start to fall into those same traps and, and misinterpretations. But there's a really robust debate going on about that. So there's sort of generally a very positive feeling about making sure that you're including you know, that our models include all the variation that we have of, you know, of animals and of humans, but also that you're doing that research in a really good way that recognises that it's often easy to mistake gender for sex and, and things like that. So 
go forth and produce wonderful science is what I would what I would say and have no have no fears. It almost seems a little analogous to what Elizabeth was saying with the assumption that we have he in the curriculum guide that uh, he represents everyone the same way that we um, trust the male body is representative of everyone. I mean, I must say the he, she thing, I mean, now you'd have a sort of gender neutral, uh, we need a gender neutral word. Um, it was one of my bugbears, actually. I can't bear the way all animals are he, you know, everything's he. I know that, that has gradually changed where it's inclusive of, of you know, the wider. And also with non-gender uh, specific people now, like it's even opening up even further. But I know, I mean, the, the argument to convince people that mankind is not <laughs> all of us is, is phenomenal. And you wouldn't think it would... It would but people really dig in and say, yes, it does, yes, it does. I, Just uh, changing was, words yeah. is very um, powerful. The way I make this point is uh, my partner is a very keen runner and he suggested to me that I should participate in one of these <laughs> Ironman competitions. And I said, once they call it an Iron Woman competition and men compete in the Iron Woman competition, then I will, I'll be there and I know I'm, I'm pretty safe. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, of course, chairman, it doesn't matter. Well, would a man like to be called the chairwoman? I'm not, I'm not sure that they would. Well, that's so. always the argument. It's always the argument. You know, it's, you know, but then when you bring it back to that, but what about seeing it from the other side? My other thing that I get really frustrated about is the Mrs, Ms and Miss mm, uh, choice. So do I. I just don't know why it's just not Mr and Ms. Like, I don't see why marital status is necessary when you're, you know, uh, ringing up a plumber, you know, does it matter? And uh, mm -hmm. I can't understand why that's, it's, it's fixed in uh, quite a few areas, but it's, I still fill out forms where you have Mr. and then Mrs. Ms. or Ms. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Can I just add too that around the um, that it's normally white male or female, you know, from a scientific perspective as well, that is, um, you know, that that kind of leads, um, you know, and uh, science. Let me tell you, has not been very kind of you know um, helpful or kind to. Um, uh, non-white and yeah, so you know, just the uh, well, we could name you know, don't measure my skull, but do you know what I mean? Like, so we've got to be really careful too in that area about um, it's not just male, female. It's you know, the um, race and and you know Darwinism, etc. That that's where the science comes from as well. I mean, just getting back to the woman who's doing the psychology. I mean, I think it is the same in so many professions, and I think we are living in a time where history is being addressed, although albeit slowly, about First Nations. You know, in, certainly in the art world, it's all male art up until um, sort of the feminist movement that have now rediscovered so many women artists in the sciences. I'm sure, it, like, it's in every field, I think, um, that's all being redressed. And I look forward to all those psychology and medical books being rewritten. Any final questions? Hello. Um, I'm just thinking about um, one thing that a lot of these professions have in common is a certain insecurity. And... Um, 
you know, traditionally the way uh, we address some of that is through solidarity as well as strategy. And I just wondered if people could reflect a bit more about, I suppose, who gives them strength as well as in yourself what gives you the sort of soul to continue. Would you like to start, Kylie? So the question was, who gives us... Well, I think I've um, mentioned it mostly in my... You know, how I'm surrounded by um, incredible um, matriarchs and aunts and, and uncles as well. Um, but um, it, it's, yeah, the women in my world. Uh, it was really interesting, just as an aside, um, I did a, a leadership... Um, what was it? The... Williamson or uh, community leadership program last year and I'd been you know so down the rabbit hole of like you know working in government and in the Aboriginal space I was astounded that white male privilege is alive and well but you know I know I like where, where have I been living but yeah it's uh it it was a shock for me and um yeah I'm, come on ladies we should have been much further down the track by now <laughs> Um, I think um, the role models are crucial. The the, peop the other women who went before you, women who you're travelling the journey with, um, I think it's absolutely crucial because that's where you get your strength and courage from as well. And I think for some, I mean that's the Me Too thing is like a you know an, an, an internet you know camaraderie. But I think in my case, it's sometimes it's just people you read about. You know, I can't. Um, in all those films and movies, I, um, I've learnt so much from reading about other women. I'm really not that interested in reading about men anymore because um, I do feel like I know them. Um, and so, you know, I can't say enough, you know, read, 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 talk, 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 you know, discuss, discuss, because I think that's where you get that energy and that strength from because it's really hard if you feel completely... Um, isolated and it's very hard to keep being the, the lone voice and to some extent within um, you know a family context sometimes you are um, the voice you know even your family can sort of um, not quite get what you're what you're wanting to say but in the wider culture it's even harder and that's when you need your family behind you to speak to the wider world so it's crucial other women is would you like to offer someone? Well, well I, I mean, uh, you know, having a supportive partner who's, you know, I mean, that's just a wonderful base to, to, to head out to, to work from um, every day and to, and to come back home to, especially when things have gone badly. So I would say that. But I think also that um, colleagues can just be the most wonderful source of support. I have a group of um, women who do feminist science and they're, you know, we, you know, we, we joke together, we share information together, we discuss ideas together. Um, you know, when a journalist comes in and said, oh, can you, um, you know, what do you think of these 20 claims from this new book, uh, movie of the female brain? You're like, oh my God, I can't cope with this all myself. Let's get a global response together. And, and there they are, they all, they all chip in. So, I, you know, I think there's something wonderful about colleagues and to colleagues who you really admire who go and bat for you. There is nothing really more... Uh, reassuring than that. Yep. 
For me, it's probably the next generation. Um, my children very much keep me honest. They constantly call out my husband and I uh, if they think something sexist, racist, not gender neutral. We get picked up all the time. Uh, sometimes they're wrong, but try arguing that with them. It, it's a nice reminder and it says something about the education that they're getting independently of us where it's not acceptable to have assumptions in your language. Um, and I also see it with my students when they don't take for granted messages through the media. They have an inquiring mind. They're able to cut through and see how the public are being manipulated by certain political speech or whatever else. And that gives me great hope. Well, I would like you to join me in thanking these three wonderful women with diverse experiences um, and also give you a chance to have a, a few words amongst yourselves before we need to close. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, thank you so much on behalf of ACCA. Um, personally, I found the evening really inspiring and um, Elizabeth, I've have had the similar experience of, of having the women that have gone before uh, as, um, in my case, working in the performing arts um, who didn't have children in order to forge careers and I was the beneficiary um, and, and was able to have children after they kind of forged the career. So to see the work that you have with your children in the work is really inspiring and, and when people go through the gallery and see... Elizabeth's work, the portrait of the artist as a young woman, it's really fabulous and so many people, so many women have commented to me about the inspiring nature of seeing her pregnant in the work, of seeing a life represented in the work that is a full life embracing children as well. Um, that being said, we're not saying you have to have children. No, 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 absolutely, but it has to be a choice. Um, but, but given that um, Kylie has chosen to have the proud black woman that's... And I had no idea that that was your daughter and as a, an ACCA person, that's a photograph of um, a part of an installation from Sovereignty that Paola Bala uh, curated and it's one of my favourite photographs and I've used it um, time and time again. I, I love Destiny's work. Um, I think she's got the most wicked sense of humour I've come across um, and I didn't know it was your daughter and it's a fabulous work and so it was great to hear your story. I'm also very um, inspired by Ubijuri and Rachel and what she's doing with the company now and so it's fantastic to hear about that. And it, it really great also, Cordelia, um, to hear about the trajectory of your career and I, I, my own research interest is in... Uh, I guess, creative collaborations and diversity in groups and what makes for diversity within a group and also what diversity within an individual means and what that brings to a group in terms of people's capacity to think creatively. So it was fabulous to hear of all of the different uh, experiences that you had brought to your, uh, I guess, ability to think about things from a completely different point of view informed by so many different experiences. <laughs> so thank you. And Andrea, fantastic also to hear about your career in 
journalism. Um, very interesting to hear of your work with Bill um, as an alternative prime minister, like, I guess, to, to hear of his capacity to connect with people in that different environment was really interesting from my point of view. And also, um, the reference to Julia's misogyny speech, very interesting. I, I um, heard her speak at the School of Government. I think she was launching John Brumby's book, and she talked about the thing of which... I think she was asked a question about quotas, and she said, well, look, I believe that um, men and women are of equal intelligence, and if you don't have 50% of the people in the room being women, you've probably not got your best people there. And um, I, I've often thought that that is a very uh, interesting way to think about things. Um, so thank you. Very inspiring talk. Thank you all for, for coming. And I'd also like to thank uh, Annabelle Lacroix, who is our public um, programs coordinator and has, through this exhibition, had the most massive amount of public programs that she has dealt with in a, a fabulous way. Um, and to thank our, our um, excellent volunteers who are behind there. Uh, Lauren, who's on sound, love to have a, a female technician, uh, and Jacob on the bar. <laughs> so please um, stay and have a drink, and um, thank you so much for a great, great conversation. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit ACCA.Melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.